Hey, Behind the Prosers, I'm back. It's episode 34 of Behind the Pros. Thank you for rocking with me. We're going into the second year of the show. And um, I know I've slowed down a little bit at the beginning of the year. You know, it's the school and my dog died and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I've been kind of slow. But nevertheless, I still do have some good shows lined up for you, including today's episode featuring a new essayist who has landed some pretty good clips over the last year or so. And so we'll talk to her. Her name is Alana Rabinowitz. And also on my check-in, I know I've been telling you about my chunks. I'm still working on chunks of 20, and I'm almost done with the second chunk. Um, Not the second chunk, but I'm almost done with this chunk of 20. I've got one more to go. This chunk has been kind of depressing, though, because I've sent about 19 things out, and I think uh, I haven't gotten any acceptances from those 19 yet. I have one possible. So, you know, this is kind of frustrating. You're like, oh, is my percentage still going to hold? Am I going to get that that one or two? Um, so I'll, I'll keep you posted on that. I still have some things that haven't been responded to yet. But I've also been kind of slowing down in a sense on the writing. Like I'm really trying to figure out what it is that I want to write regularly and consistently because there's so many different outlets and different angles that you can go from and there's so many different places. It's just, I have so many different interests. Sometimes it's overwhelming. So I'm trying to step back and focus. And actually, I think um, the guest on today's show, Alana Rabinowitz, is a good person to talk about that because uh, she is a nonfiction writer and she is um, a writer and a lifelong teacher She writes from a tender heart about growing up in Brooklyn. She writes about traveling, relationships. She writes about the world. And in her work that I've read, she really always seems to have one sentence in there that just kind of hits the reader or sums up, um, not in a cheesy kind of way, but in sort of a simple yet profound way about how her piece speaks to herself, but also to the rest of us. So with that said, I want to welcome Alana Rabinowitz to Behind the Bros. Thank you so much, Keisha. And I love being called a writer out loud. And I love that you said I'm profound. So it's already off to a great start. (laughs) Good. Let's keep (laughs) going that way. (laughs) I, um, I found your work on this Facebook group that we are both members of called um, Binders of Essays, and mm-hmm. it was a, maybe a few weeks ago I saw you had posted or someone had posted that you had a clip in the New York Times, the Metropolitan Diary, um, and I read it and I took a look at some of your clips on your site quickly at that time, and I reached out to you and I said, oh, she seems cool. She, I would like to talk to her. She's got a wide variety of um, essays published. You're doing nonfiction um, which, as everyone knows who listens, is what I studied at the new school. <laughs> and um, so I said, let me reach out to her, and I'm glad that you responded. Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for reaching out, and thanks for noticing my little clip in the Times. I'm still, you know, have to pinch myself every once in a while that I actually got in. 
And um, it's, it's, as a writer, it's actually a funny story how I got to that point, if you'd like to hear it. Um, of course. Basically, okay, so, you know, writing comes from all different places and inspiration. And this particular story is something that happened to me a few months ago when I started a new teaching position and I was walking to work and I had this embarrassing story where I'm walking and I'm listening to music and I'm getting in my groove and I don't realize that my skirt is hanging out and it, it was a construction worker that tapped me on the shoulder and let me know and I'm walking in Park Slope and all these people are smiling but nobody had the courage to say something and it's sort of like the reverse cat call the, the last person that you expect and I'm telling everyone this story and it's this very funny story and I don't know what to do with it and people are always telling you know write the story that you can only tell or write you have to write this and I'm thinking how can I write this story and I wrote it out, and I made it this 900-word essay like I'm sort of trained to do, and I submitted it to a few places, and there were no bites. But I've had this happen a few times with some of my major publications where I've sent it to one editor, and they kindly wrote back. And, and this particular piece I sent to um, an editor at the Gothamist because I thought it was very New York, and he wrote back the nicest email, and he just said, you know, that's not really what we're looking for, but have you thought about the New York Times Metro Diary, and here's the mm. link to their site. And, and, that, and who does that? You know, like you can mm -hmm. barely get a response from an editor. I don't know this man. I do now because I email him all the time. Thank you, thank you. You know, you changed my life. Your email, and, I'm, and I don't know quite what to do, but I, I feel like I have to give it a try. And how do you make a 900-word essay 300 words? How do you mm -hmm. edit out? And I, I managed to do it, and I send it in. And a few weeks later, I get the response that it's accepted. And I would wow. have never, would have never thought to make this funny little anecdote into a 300-word essay and then send it out to the New York Times. But a, basically a stranger who is really kind and took the time to read this particular essay and something must have resonated or, or just the kindness of his own heart. And, and then later I was published and I sent him immediately before any family mm. member, I just, I found the original email thread and I sent it to him and I just said, I have to thank you so much. Did he respond when you sent a thank you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Congratulations, awesome. Alana. I think he then followed me on Twitter. I felt like I made it, you know, here I had the respect yeah. of, a, of another editor right away. And then of course, mm. seeing yourself in the New York Times is completely surreal because you're actually reading the paper and you see your name there, and it's it's, it's indescribable. Hmm. There's so many things in that that uh, um, I want to unpack. Um, so, you originally the piece was 900. Um, mm -hmm. How did you approach whittling it down to 300? What was that revision process for you like? It was really interesting. I found that I was um, surprisingly a better editor than I thought I could be because the first time I did it, I couldn't, I couldn't get it down to less than 500 words. I couldn't let go of my darlings, or I forget the expression, but every, every word as a writer is so important to you, and it's so carefully chosen. And when you get rid of something, you feel like you're leaving out the essential story. And then you realize that so much that you add for description that can be taken away and I just thought about it as if I was writing basically um, a movie trailer or I wanted to get the point across and what could what what needed to be kept in and 
it was, it was a tough decision. You know, it's agonizing to let go of your words, but I just left out a lot of descriptive details and a chunk of sort of what happened once I got to school and the aftermath and really just focused on the, the one connection with the particular construction worker and tried to mm-hmm. hone in. But it's, it's a tough choice because you don't know what words to leave in and what to take out, and I hope that I made the right choices. And sometimes that information not being there, you know, can can lead people to make assumptions. And, you know, you want to keep, you would prefer to explain yourself further. But um, it became a practice in letting go, which is something that I've learned to do as a writer as I'm progressing. It, it's hard to let go of your words, but sometimes once you do, it just frees it up. Did you work so with it. another? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't hear what you said. Did I work with another? Did you work with another writer or a um, a group when you were doing the editing of that? Or... Oh, good question. So I, ever since I started writing or getting published, I said, because I've been writing since I was a little kid, I've always had some kind of writing group or writing partner. And I worked with them when I wrote the 900-word essay. And I think everyone's like, oh, that's cute, funny. But I didn't get a tremendous amount of feedback because it wasn't as, as serious of a piece. And then um, I have one writing partner that I work with quite frequently, and she was the one just, just to really hold my hand and say, you know, to let it go. But I actually did the editing by myself because they were my words, and I couldn't let someone else tell me, oh, you could let this go. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, I'm going to um, take I, a step. Go ahead. I, this is, oh, I'm back I know. to my I, I original behind-the-pearls problems, people. <laughs> Cutting people off. <laughs> no, I think I was done with what I was trying to say of, of how hard it is to really get it down to 300 words. But mm-hmm. once you do, and I think it was exactly 300 words. I think I wasn't going to yes, let one is. more it's word go. It's exactly 300 words. That did a word count. That's what I was going to ask you. <laughs> um, so let's take a little step back and Talk about um, your professional writing career. When and how, when did that launch as far as you starting to say, I'm going to write and pitch and publish? So that's been a long process. You know, um, I started writing in college and did a lot of things with college newspapers and journalism, but never really thought that was something that I could take to the outside world. And every couple of years, whenever I live in New York City, I end up taking some sort of adult education writing class, and I learn how to write these wonderful little essays, and then I leave the class, and I have these essays, and I don't know what to do with them. And sometimes I keep them, sometimes I don't, but I've never gone to the next step. And then a lot happened in my personal life, which I wrote about about a year ago, and somehow on a whim, I decided last year during spring break that I had a little extra money and time, I was going to take a class and I was going to figure out how to get published. And that came about also from going to a career counselor because I was sort of dissatisfied with my job just as a teacher and I wanted to explore other areas of creativity and it came out, everybody that knew me well knew that I loved writing and and kind of encouraged me to pursue it. So I took this class, and I had taken a class before with, and I think you know Sue Shapiro, as a lot of us um, new writers do, and I took her class, which I was terrified to take, because um, I know that she's very open, and she's, you know, you have to 
really feel comfortable with yourself in that class. And I took this, this five-week class out of her apartment, and from the very first moment that I was in the class, I knew something was going to happen. And the first piece that I wrote and read out loud, I got published. And from then on, um, I would say she's really responsible. That particular class is the only place that I've gone that taught me what the next step is and how do you get published, which is, which is a missing piece from a lot of wonderful writing programs. Mm. And that first piece was, which piece was that, the, the psychic piece? Yeah, that was the psychic piece, and it was terrifying. It's a comic piece in many ways, but it was absolutely terrifying. You, I chose to write it, and I chose to read it in the middle of class, and I had to um, stop in the middle of class and have someone else read it because I began to well up from the emotion. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't know how to get it published, and Sue would email me and just help me she really wanted it published herself. You know, she really felt for me with that particular piece. And we would just brainstorm together, and I finally got it published. And ironically, shortly thereafter, a friend of a friend looked at it, and he's actually considering making it a short film. So you can mm. get better results than that. I mean, that's sort of the dream. I'm like, my crazy life is suddenly interesting to a filmmaker, and that's fantastic as well. Mm. So you never so- know what can come out when you reveal yourself. And you seem to do that with um, art and skill, I would say. Um, Thank you. It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It seems focused in a way, the way that mm-hmm. you um, share, the, the, the way that you write and and. and when we get further into some more of the pieces themselves, I'll point out some of the things. So that was about, what, two years ago, you said, when you started, actually, you took the class with Sue and everything. I took the class last April, mm-hmm. so almost a year ago. This process is less than a year old. Oh, yeah, because 2015 was just last year. I feel like it's yeah, two years I ago. Know. <laughs> Because so everybody, if you go, go to the Behind the Pearls page, you'll see her um, show links there. You can find all her clips, um, and you can read her very first piece that came out of Susan Shapiro's class, which was on uh, Behind the Pearls. She was on Behind the Pearls episode 25, plug, 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 go listen to it. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> and that Exo Jane piece is It Happened to Me. I got addicted to psychics while looking for love. Um and so let's now, since then, you have been published in Exo Jane, Your Tango, She Knows, Hello Giggles, um, The Billfold, which is a, um, uh, like a, a sort of a, I don't want to say a journal, but a type of a publication as a part of a medium. Um, mm-hmm. And then you were in The Villager and The Caveller. Did I say that right? I think that's right, Caveller, yeah. Good job. Okay. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about that. So let me go back to my little notes here. Sure. Um, let's go back to the Metropolitan Diary piece. Um, and you said you wrote, you, you whittled it down to 300 and you sent them. And then within a few weeks back, they, um, you know, they responded to you. Um, what was that interaction like that they want you to do any edits or it was a bizarre interaction because, you know, usually you have sort of an intimate relationship with the editor, and this was, um, a, there was an editor involved, but it wasn't, it was more form letter, like, we are considering using your piece, 
we're just ensuring that you haven't published it elsewhere. It still wasn't 100% sure that they were going to use it. It just seemed like they were considering it. And then when they finally decided on it, there was some small editing. Um, they had a mm-hmm. question about, I think I said something about a Pacific Arts project, and they wanted to make sure that that was the correct building. What the editing did not catch, which will be my um, claim to fame, is that the name Biggie Smalls was spelled incorrectly. And that became sort of an interesting um, second part of it because then they had to have a retraction saying how they the name wrong, and that became sort of this comical thing going around the web. So um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> that's my first piece in the New York Times, and there's a typo. So there you go. <laughs> Um, you yeah, I saw that out. at the bottom of the. I saw that at the bottom of the article. I was like, "What in the world?" <laughs> <laughs> that got more play than the original article, I think. But um, it was it was a it was a small piece, and it was a, uh, a special piece. But there, it was chock full of a lot of different things as well. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm learning too that you can fit a lot into a small space. And you did, and the piece is called "Courtesy in a Hard Hat." Did you come up with that title, or did they? They came up with that title, and that was one of the few interactions they did have. They said, did he wear a hard hat? And they said, we think it would make a good title. And I said, I believe he did. I call him wearing a hard hat. What was your title before? Um, Something like an unlikely hero or a construction worker hero, something with the idea of a a hero and it sort of being ironic. Forget the exact Mm -hmm. title. When you went to, when you were working on this to get it down to the 300, did you go and read some of the other Metropolitan Diary pieces? I did. I did go and read some of their pieces, and very few of them were more than a couple, uh, very few of them were that big. So I got nervous. I thought, you know, the first time I'd got it down to like 500, and, and now I got down to 300, and most of them were just these poignant little noticings or maybe one or two sentences, really like almost haikus of New York City. And I got nervous because I thought, oh, mine's so big. All of a sudden, 300 words seemed enormous, and what were they going to do with it? But I really just, I didn't change the flavor of what I wrote. I just had to go with my gut that they chose it for a reason, and it was my voice and my peculiar story. And um, I just, I was nervous that they were going to make it shorter, and they didn't. Mm. They really kept it as but if you re- go ahead. Oh, oh, it's the cutoff moment. So if you, but in reading the other ones, they can be completely these beautiful, poignant pieces, and also just hysterically funny things that they overhear. Not as many stories. So I was surprised mm. that they let almost a full story get in there, and it was one of the first ones on the page. So that was thrilling for me. So in your that piece, you have a scene, you have backstory. It do, you have present return to the present scene, and then it, it does do a lot within that three hundred page, uh, three hundred words, not three hundred pages. Um, <laughs> it does. But now that you say your original title is kind of makes sense because when I was writing it, I had took a note, and then I was gonna. So one of the notes that I took was I said the first two graphs kind of set up the conflict with construction workers or the history of walking down the street and being harassed and like just kind of putting on your earbuds and not wanting to be bothered. Um, and so it sets up this kind of potential anxiety in the reader that mm-hmm. we think something bad is going to happen. Um, and then I was going to ask you if that was intentional 
But then I, when I went back and looked at the title, I was like, oh, well, no, the title kind of tells us what happens. But now that you say your original title, which was like an unexpected, um, I'm, re- I'm badly paraphrasing what you said, but it, was, it wasn't like as overt as the one that the editors picked. It makes sense the way I read how it right, laid out. Right, that's the way the original story was going, that it was sort of building mm. up, kind of bringing you back to my upbringing in New York and what I had gone through and just the anxiety that I would feel. And then now, I mean, that's like my favorite block to walk by. And I, I do still look for that man. I honestly do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just, just to say um, thank you. So when you write, do you have a special writer's area, like where you, uh, a special writer's area or time? I know everybody has, I always feel like a, uh, a special kind of writer because one, my, um, my schedule is so different because I am a full-time teacher, full-time department of ed, public school, middle school teacher, very demanding job. And when I do write, I try and find, um, some kind of routine with it. It's, it's not as prominent in, uh, as others, but it's always, uh, it has to be in a comfortable seat or on the floor. I usually write at the <laughs> table, the table that I have that's got this really cozy seat that looks out the window or, mm. you know, I, I need some kind of natural light or um, there's one other chair in the room. And those are the only two places that I can write within my own apartment. I can't go to a coffee shop I can't tend to write around other people unless it's a writer's workshop. Uh, For some reason, sitting with other writers sort of um, accelerates the process, but generally it's those two places, and that's where I write. Those are the only places that I can really write and have to be be well-rested and focused. I I have to give myself, you know, I can't, can't be reading too much that morning or can't have too many other distractions because I really need to focus on what I need to say in a short amount of time. Mm. Um, what comes first for you? You have over a dozen publications since last June. What comes first for you, the idea or the outlet? Hmm, that's an excellent question. I think that I do much better when I work on the idea because if something is very personal to me, it just grabs me, and then it's quite easy for me to write, because I I like the idea of the storytelling. When I've tried the outlets, and I've tried to work around, oh, I'd really love to be in Marie Claire, I'd really love to be in this type of magazine, um, it almost doesn't come out right, and Mm, I haven't been as successful. And I've tried, because I really want to get into a higher level, you know, I've been extremely lucky in the short time that I'm writing, and I'm very fortunate for that. But then I'm also, I have all these people pushing me, you know, and you should be in these certain publications. And I try to write for them, and it almost never works because it's not genuine mm. for me. But I think that could be a level of skill that when I get more familiar and over time, I can really master that. But for me, the writing comes from a personal place, from a connection with a person or something that's happened that moves me to write something. That's how it works for me. So you have an idea for a place or a connection, and let's actually um, let's take one of these examples here. This sure. piece that ran at the beginning of March in the Seattle Times, Sweet Memories of Helping Plant Trees in Sri Lanka, came flooding back. Um, and what 
So what was the my, – my brain just went bloop. I had a connection. Um, um, in terms of you getting – what was the impetus for the idea for this piece? Sure, sure. That's, um, that's another great story as well because being part of these various binders or these different websites where you're around other writers, even if it's, you know, virtually – I had seen an article or somebody had placed something about going back and looking at your old pieces and reworking them and getting them published. And a while ago, I can't remember exactly when, um, through Facebook, I have connected with my host sister from the time that I was in the Peace Corps, which was 20 years ago, quite a long time ago, and quite bizarre to have um, Facebook connections in a time pre-internet in a, from a third world country that was so different. And she had sent me this beautiful beautiful post with pictures of these rambutan, these fruit projects that I had worked on 20 years ago, and this lovely um, comment under it how my other host sister, who speaks no English, just wanted to make sure that I knew that they were, the fruit had grown and they were enjoying this, you know, these beautiful objects, and, and thank you so much. And so much of Facebook is, is other people bragging and other kinds of things. And it was just this incredible moment in time where I really needed someone to say, you know, thank you, or I had done something, or, you know, you're, you, you had purpose during that time. And I wrote this article, and it didn't come out very good, and I didn't know what to do with it. And often um, it's my other friends that encourage the writing, not just the writing groups, but I have a large group of very close friends that um, – constantly are asking about my writing or I'll, I'll send that the articles to them just to get a different perspective. And one particularly says, you know, you have to get back to that piece. And I tried and I just couldn't find the right venue for it. And I said, you know, finally I was looking and looking and trying all these New York venues, but it's really a story about trees and nature. And I thought Seattle, Seattle will take it. You know, I'd gone to Seattle last summer. I had such a wonderful experience and they took it the next day. And the editor there was one of the nicest editors I've ever worked with. I can't think of one editor that I don't adore now. I feel like I've made these acquaintances slash friends. I mean, he was so polite and so excited by the article and particularly said, you know, we don't even really take people from out of state, but, you know, that I was so moved by this piece and it's such a great piece. And, and it, it was just really a pleasure to work with. And he even followed up after the piece to say what a great read it was. And it was such a great experience to be to be chosen. You know, the New York Times is obviously incredible, but I feel like, you know, it, it felt that much more special that it, I wasn't living in the area and still my words somehow resonated for them. That's beautiful. That's actually one of the questions that I had. Uh, what made you Seattle Times? Like, how did you get there? Um, what about the audience or topic? And so that's a perfect um, thing I think that people can learn to, all right, think about, you know, audience and who might want, you know, who might who might want what you have. Um, and don't think about just the, your sort of circle, um, like either New York area or whatever. That's, that's so important because since I've started this class, I now have a list of, I make a spreadsheet and I add to it every day and I'm constantly researching different places to send articles to. And, um, and every op-ed, and, and, and it's really important. So we, you had asked me earlier, you know, I don't necessarily write for the Seattle Times, but when you're thinking about who will take it, it really has to make sense. 
You know, it has to go to a place that wants it, just like anything that you do, really. You know, you have to focus on, on what you have the best shot. And it doesn't mean not to try for certain other publications because they were not my first choice. But it, when, when it is the right fit, they, they do respond kind of quickly, which is great, if they respond at all. It, well, and that's my thing. I think when you send to outlets today, I feel like if they don't, if they don't get back to you in a week, if it's like a newspaper or something – well, I mean, that's not necessarily true because I guess the time, but the Times does say, oh, we'll get back to you in three weeks or in something if you can expect not to hear from us. Um, but I think for the most part, when people want something, they kind of respond quickly. I don't know, maybe that's a stereotype on my part. but um. Well, especially with this was considered an op-ed piece, so they, they tend mm-hmm. to go kind of quickly. But, yeah, it mm-hmm. is amazing when you get the email the same day. You think, what have I done right? Wait, you know, that's offensive. So. The the opening quote on that piece, did you pick the quote for that? That's so funny that you noticed that because that's another thing that Sue is always talking about in her class. It's a timely lead, a timely lead, a great lead, and I couldn't come up with a good lead, and I think that was what was um, making the story kind of lag. I couldn't think of how to how to segue into it. And somewhere, I didn't look for it, somebody had posted this quote. And I was like, are you kidding? This is a real quote? You know, 20 years ago, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second, and I was like, then the story takes place 20 years ago about trees, and I just worked so seamlessly. I had to use it. Yeah, that's the, the exact note that I have. That's the exact note that I have. The quote transitions seamlessly into the first line, and it almost feels like you couldn't have wrote, you couldn't have written this story any other time, based on that quote, a, at least. It's been amazing, and the quote came afterwards. So I do think there is yeah. something for sitting on a piece or, you know, it, it's sort of um, I wasn't looking for it. So it's sort of that same concept of when you're not pushing it because I, I tried a million different ways to start it and nothing seemed genuine. And then this quote came to me, and, and the, that night I sent it out, and that morning I got a response from the Seattle Times. How long did this piece take you to write? You know, when I write a piece, I write it fairly quickly because it it, um, it sort of flows out of me. That makes sense. It's, something happens to me when I write, and everything just sort of comes out naturally. And then I go back and work it a few times, and then I'll have at least two people look at it. If, if I can get it into a class workshop, this particular one I did not. And But I put it away for six months, and I came back to it, and then I reworked it probably four or five times. And then I finally found the good quote, and that sealed the deal. Mm. And he had very few edits on the actual piece, which is always lovely as well, because he was a real editor, someone who sat there line by line and checked everything. And sometimes mm. they just quickly, like um, there are certain publications, I won't mention by name, I don't want to you know, burn any bridges, but they don't edit at all, and, and that comes back mm. to haunt mm. you because – the, the mm-hmm. trolls will say you could write the most heart wrenching personal piece. She, you know, didn't she didn't use enough commas or she spelt this word wrong. Yeah, and that's what they focus on. Mhm. Mhm. Um, you said you worked it a few times. When you go back in in terms of um, your revision process, um, what does that mean for you? So generally, what I try and do is I um, learn very quickly to print out your piece because you have to see it on paper. And I tend to, even if I have an audience or not, I read it out loud because I write my pieces really to be read out loud. And then I look back, um, and usually I end up editing something that does, cutting out part of it 
and, I, and ever since the New York Times article, I've become this expert of like letting things go, which is, you know, the greatest lesson I learned from that. And then finding the perfect word if you can. You know, if there is a way to say something better or if there's a way to say it in a simple way that's going to hit more people. And then um, I usually want other people to look at it to see if there's any confusion because I'm in the piece. I was in the piece where I know these words and I'm using foreign words and a, a fruit that's not popular. You know, does this make sense? Does this, do you feel anything from this? Because I want my, well, every piece I write to evoke emotion, whether it's laughter or tears, but it, it should evoke emotion. That's my goal as a writer. Mm-hmm. You said you and put it was, away for six months. Why did you choose yeah. to uh, put it away? I didn't like it. I just felt like I wrote oh. it and um, it was written to sort of, you know, I was touched at the moment and I wrote it out, but it didn't It didn't flow well. It didn't have a lot of emotion to it. And then when I, when I saw that, that posting about, you know, go back and work your old pieces, I thought, this is a, you know, this is an important piece, an important part of my life. And, you know, essentially I waited 20 years for it. So when I went back to it, you know, sometimes you really have to step away from pieces. It has to be where you are in your own life. And I I had enough distance and I I was feeling more confident with my writing. I was getting published now in major publications. And I felt like I I would have the nuance to make it a better story. Mm. And I, and I had, you know, it was the right time if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. One of the, and in this piece, one of the sentences, as I said earlier, you have this way of just having these sentences in there that really kind of uh, hit the reader and make the reader stop and think about what this piece means to you and the world at large. And one of those sentences, the super sentences I call them, is in that piece Ooh, that. you say, <laughs> I'm going to call you Alana super sentence we're good of it. <laughs> you can call me that anything. I'm totally going to steal that super sentence line. I love it. Like superwoman. Yeah, let's go. I'm so, so curious with my super sentence. It's just like the fruit itself. I was filled with sweetness and happiness in such a way I didn't think possible that perhaps my time there was not for naught. Ah. That's so funny. That was like the one line we had, to work, we had to edit together because it was a little confusing when I first wrote it. So we did a good job if that's the one that resonated for you. Um, mm. it, was, you know, it was really a powerful thing to, to write and to experience because you feel as a volunteer, you know, um, a lot of people do these things and they want to do it to tell people about it or to feel good about yourself. And the whole time I was there, I kept thinking, you know, I'm making these wonderful connections and I'm doing things. But, you know, what what really happens? And actually, the goal of Peace Corps is to teach your to learn about another culture, but to also teach people about that other culture, and to be mm-hmm. able to do that through the article. Actually, it's the one article because all my essays are so personal, and I teach middle school. It's the one article I've been teaching to my students because there's nothing, mm. you know, that's that revealing in it and, and to see what they get out of it so that I'm continuing the process of teaching them. But it is, it is inexplicable, that's the word, inexplainable, inexplicable, to get an email like that or to think that, you know, there is this thing that has been born through you, especially with my other articles and what I've been going through in my life. And that, it, it, you know, that it, it just is this happiness that there, that something will continue when you're gone. 
and and that's how I I chose to phrase it. Mm-hmm. And you do write about the personal, as you said, and one of those personal pieces came out in the Washington Post in December last year. Um, that one's called "My Friends Were Popping Out Babies in Their Forties, Couldn't I Be Next?" Nine hundred and eighty-five words um, in their column, solo-ish. And uh, you also had a line in that one too that struck me, and that line was, "To lose that love is something I have come to accept." But to lose it, motherhood is a battle I still fight with every baby bump I see and every first post it on Facebook. Yeah, that's going to make me cry, too. Um, that that line and that piece is actually interesting that you chose to hone in on that because um, this was a piece I also wrote and then put away and, and read to um, my writing partner, who at the time was pregnant through IVF and she hadn't told anyone and I read her this piece and she started crying hysterically and mm-hmm. um, it touched her so much and she was the one that insisted I, I write it and send it out and to me it was just sort of a personal piece like a therapy piece to sort of deal with the process mm-hmm. of what I had gone through and this is yet another story of sending it to an editor I sent it to some, some website called Lies About Parenting I found it in my search And the woman wrote back to me this beautiful email, and it said something like, I'd love to uh, use your piece, but it needs a, it's, it's such an important message. It needs a bigger venue. And here are the places you should submit it. And one of them was the Washington Post. And I had submitted it to the Washington Post, but had heard nothing back. And this time, one of the things I learned, and I think this is great advice to anyone, is, you know, if you're really confident that a piece belongs somewhere, you know, really confident, if somebody else, a stranger tells you, you know, that's a fair level of confidence, um, I just really worked on rewriting a better pitch and saying the importance of this piece because I felt compelled to, to get it published in a big publication after this woman wrote these poignant words. And when, once I did, they sent it to, I think it was um, a parenting website, they sent it to Soloish. And the next day I got this email from the Washington Post. And, I mean, I'm still mm. shaking every time I think of that email because I didn't think it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't written for a large audience. It was written for me and my writing partner maybe. And the impact that it had on them made me, you know, realize it needed to be in a bigger venue. And once it was out there, which was very difficult for me to um, reveal myself in that way, I have never received so many emails from people all over the world, uh, people from New Zealand saying they were rooting for me, relatives, so many men that I knew that had similar issues within their own relationships, just so many people wanting to talk about this subject. I realized, you know, and I had to thank this woman that, uh, you know, this, this little website just for basically changing my life. Mm. And hopefully the life of somebody else, uh, of somebody else who was considering fertility and didn't didn't know enough about it at an early enough age. Mm-hmm. But um, th- to go back to your specific, because I think I went off topic. Um, yeah, it, it's a very emotional time, and I went back, and that that line and that section was rewritten later, when I had a little mm. distance again, and it was, and that's what was pointed out that that was the strongest part of my piece, and that's the, the more relatable part. Um, and that wasn't there at the beginning because I wasn't as honest with myself at the time of writing it. It was still so new. This just happened, you know. And um, when I had just that small distance from it, I was able to be more honest in my writing. 
You said you went back and worked on a better pitch. What made it better? What did you do differently in the pitch I, letter? Right. No, that's a good question. I still have so much to learn. I think I need to take a class just how to pitch, like a one-day class, because, um, you know, you hear different ways to do it, but I think I usually just sort of write a short thing of what the title is and a short synopsis, and this one was more to be a part of why it's imperative that this piece be published and, and how important it is for young women and other women. And it was very strong. And the other pieces mm. were, the other pitches were more just, you know, a summary. And this one was saying like, you have to publish this essentially. And it, mm. and it, and it got the message because it was the same pub. It was the same email. same uh, I had sent maybe months ago that I got no response. So sometimes when you're not getting a response, it could simply be that your pitch wasn't strong enough. Mm. And the, the only first reason, paragraph, go ahead. I was saying, I think the only reason this particular pitch was strong was because this woman told me it was so so powerful. So I felt that more courage to write it and to make sure. But I don't think I would normally on my own write such a strong pitch, and that's something I'm learning I need to do. Mm. Which is this, as the second time, at least, uh, that an editor has referred you to someone, yes. <laughs> to a publication. I, so I love editors. I love them. The first paragraph includes um, a pop culture reference um, to uh, like Gwen Stefani and you know celebrities who are having babies in their forties. Um, did you write that intro that way because you wanted to make it contemporary for the post? That's so interesting. So I wrote the intro and I just said something to the point of celebrities were popping out babies and the editor said, which ones? And mm-hmm. I just chose a few. And I think unbeknownst to me, that made it go even more viral because I wasn't planning such brilliant marketing, but then it became picked up by celebrity websites or so many, it just became picked up by so many things. It was actually picked up by the Chicago Tribune, the same article. So it just mm-hmm. really went quite viral. But that was um, the editor's tip. I was just writing it, meaning like I think, you know, when celebrities do anything, it's fine. And when when regular people do it, it's questioned. And I was still, you know, insecure with my own decision. And then it was the editor's idea to use their specific names. Mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to be so hip. <laughs> do you have a, um, like, I know you said that, when you get inspired, you, you know, you'll write something if you have a story that you want to tell. Um, but within the last less than a year, you have about 12 publications. So is there like a schedule that you have yourself on as far as pitching and, or do you set to do something once a month or? I pitch constantly and I write constantly. It's not in any particular schedule. I still take, um, I'm still, what does constantly mean? Um, it, so it's not, well, the pitching is constant. The writing isn't as constant. So on any given day that I have access to a computer during working hours, I will either um, go back in my sent mailbox and see if enough time has passed to check up on a, on a piece and, and um, revisit with an editor to follow up. Or if there is something that I feel, you know, they're not picking up, can I send it to now my, another publication? So it might be the mm-hmm. same piece that I'm just continuing because I'm, I'm relentless. I'm not giving up. And I think that's why mm-hmm. I've had the success I've had with the numbers because some people just get, you know, they take it really personally. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I can't afford that. So I'm just like, mm. okay, they didn't want it their loss. You know, so many people said no to the Washington Post piece. And it, it you know, so I'm, I now learn that it's just like what I had said earlier, it's, it's finding the right venue. And then I'm taking classes still. So I'm taking a class at the new school um, with Sue, the, the journalism class. And so I have to write at least weekly for that. And, and mm-hmm. most of that comes on the weekends because during the week it's harder. So during the week I'm usually um, sending out pitches, maybe doing some quick editing, but it's constant. It's, um, you know, I, I think some editors are ready to kill me, so I have to set it back <laughs> a little bit because I'm just, it's, I just feel like I don't want to, if, if, I, if I wrote something, and especially if it's a timely piece, I have to make sure it gets out there in time and someone's looking at it. But I'm also getting better at knowing that these aren't the right publications or you don't want to, you know, keep mm-hmm. sending to places that are not responding to you at all. Mm-hmm. What's your rule for timely pieces? Um, do you try to avoid sending them to places that don't allow simultaneous submissions? Do you say in your cover letter, uh, if I don't hear from you in a couple of days... <laughs> You know, I should say that always. Um, I should always say that, and sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't, and I do simultaneous submissions, and and um, not on a timely piece, but I've had myself where I've been accepted to more than one, um, and I've learned my lesson, so I try and piece it. But with a timely piece, if I can, um, if I feel like it's not going to harm me, I'll I'll let them know that I'm sending it out to multiple places, and. I'm not sure, you know, some places I've emailed, they said, you know, even for a web, an online site, which, you you know, you, you think that you don't need as much time prior, they've said, you know, we need six weeks because I wanted to do a holiday piece. And I just did something about um, my, my accountant, which was this really cute piece, and I wanted to make sure it got out in time. And so I was, I, I thought, you know, right now, it just was published a few, last week, I believe, but I didn't want to wait for a week or two right before because I thought that wasn't enough lead time. So I haven't figured out the nuance yet. I haven't done anything so last minute and had it accepted. But it's it's pretty hard to get things in on holidays, like high holidays, but I'm noticing other holidays, like if you can do a little something on Valentine's Day or this thing about tax season, it's not as highly done. I mean, Valentine's Day for sure, but um, the tax season – it's just trying to get it in before, trying to let the editors know. That's, I mean, that's the best thing you can do. But sometimes I'm afraid if it's, you know, a certain publication that I'm going to irritate a person by putting that. So maybe I'll just wait a day or two and then I'll send it somewhere else. Mm, okay. And you said that um, you said I don't think I finished uh, my second cup of coffee this morning. You said oh, that. No. Um, <laughs> so my brain just had another like, bloop, part two. Um, it, it's about the simultaneous submissions. Um, at any rate, the New York Times in there when they sent you back the email, they said that oh we want to check if you still you know if it's still available. And I know they do say that um, don't do. Oh, I know what the question was. The question yeah. was. <laughs> What happened when you had the two pieces accepted at the same time? Um, oh, that was so, that was so embarrassing, that right? <laughs> Were one of, was one of them a place that said no simultaneous submissions and you kind of like did it anyway? Like, And how did you get out or of that situation and did the piece get published somewhere? Right. So I have to be careful with mentioning these were not, you know, 
Um, when it, for example, if I pitch the New York Times or if I pitch the Washington Post, I only pitch them. But when it comes to some piece that's a little fluffier or a little bit lighter, I didn't think this piece was going to get published. It was about a dating thing. I sent it out late on a Sunday night after I, I met with my writing partner. And that same morning, two different places were like, we love it. And I, I didn't know what to do, so I just was honest and said, I'm new to writing. I didn't realize, you know, I had already sent it out. And they were fine with it because um, one of the pla- I had published in both of them before, and I just chose, the, you know, I made my decision on which one. I think one paid more as well, and I did it that way. But And then I learned that actually, you know, I, I always thought it was, you know, a good thing to do because I don't want to wait too long in between, but it taught me a valuable lesson that you have to pace it if you can or, or if not. And, and, it, and I still um, had, I was still accepted afterwards for one of the places. Mm. So it hasn't harmed me. I, I tend to be honest, but I think at a certain level, you really have to pitch and, and I'm starting to try and keep spreadsheets of who I'm sending and when and doing the follow-up, but it's hard because you're, you know, some, you, you have to wait so long, and then the piece might lose interest. Mm-hmm. Well, a couple, last couple questions for you. Sure. Um, what, if you would like to to share with us, um, and in terms, and you just mentioned that the one of the outlets might have paid or paid more. Um, how has the income been from your freelancing that you've been doing. I know obviously we know that many outlets don't pay, but some of them do. And I think maybe probably time pays in Washington Post. Would you be willing to share with us any of your um, uh, windfalls? (laughs) Yes. Well, ideally I would love to be a full-time freelance writer. And um, it does not pay very well, as we all know. And even, and I don't think it's, it's losing anything, but the piece in the New York Times, they don't pay for the Metro Diaries. They pay for their other places. But I wasn't going to say no. Um, even the mm-hmm. Seattle Times does not pay. And I asked him, and he said, well, I understand if you don't want to use us. And, again, I, I, I said yes because of the, the publication itself. Um, I make a, a point, unless it's a major publication, at this point I don't do anything for free. A lot of the pieces pay from 25 to $150. I haven't made more than that on any particular piece. I'd love to. Mm-hmm. You know, then mm-hmm. I could make different decisions. And I've been fairly successful in, in the pieces, but um, that's a choice you have to make as well. So I think forward, you know, it would be nice to get paid a little bit more, and then I could could consider that going forward. But it is it, a lot of the pieces don't pay tremendously. Do you find out before you pitch a place that it's a paying outlet? Because I know sometimes um, that's not information that's on, like, their website. Or... I mean, I, I, I research fairly well. A few times mm-hmm. I've noticed I've been tricked a few times, and I haven't said yes yet. I, I did once get tricked. They published it. I'm not going to say who it was, and it wasn't paying, and there was no way I can get it back, and I wouldn't have said yes. But mm-hmm. there were because it was a very timely piece, and they, they sent it out right away. But there's a lot of times I'll send it to a magazine, and they'll send it to their online division, and I get this enthusiastic email, oh, we'd love to publish it, we, you know, we can't pay, or there's something where they can't pay. And I'd love, I'd love to be part of these um, websites, but I just, I also feel um, this allegiance now to the freelancers, and I, I want writers to get paid more, and I, 
you know, I know a lot of people don't even write for HuffPost because they don't pay their writers usually. And, and I'm trying to, even though I have another source of income, you know, be united on that front, that at least I, I get mm. something. And, and I have negotiated rates as well. You know, mm. And if I've written for more than one, I've asked for more money. I'm, you know, I know I'm getting more experience. And, you know, that's, I think, why the dream, if you, you can write for a magazine, you know, they pay much more. So that is, that is a goal I have for myself. And one of my last questions for you is, what do you think is a superpower you have that has enabled you to sort of just kind of hit the ground running and, like, amass all these great clips in the last uh, less than a year? I love the superpower thing. I don't know what it is. I'd be curious to what others think. I would imagine it has something to do with where I am in my own life. Um, Just being older and being more confident going through a lot has made it easier for me to care less about what I'm writing and just to speak my mind. But I think in my personality in general, I'm usually a person that says their opinions and, um, because I've spent so much time abroad and working with different cultures, I try and be really careful with the words that I choose, and maybe that comes out in my writing. That, um, you know, usually what I say has more than one meaning, and it's only a certain person that can catch that. So you're one of them. Yay. Mm. Well, thank you very much. I'm honored that I could be one of the ones to catch that, and I know that when I read your Metropolitan Diary piece, I was truly inspired by it, so I welcome you back anytime, and I wish you the best and best of luck. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful, and thank you for telling me that I have, like, super sentence power. I'm going to remember that forever. (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. And, again, you're welcome back anytime, and I'm inspired by uh, what you've done uh, so far. I'm looking forward to what you will do in the future, and I know you're working on a memoir, so when you get that published, you can come back right here to Behind the Pros. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thank you, Alana Rabinowitz. Okay. And that Bye-bye. brings us to another end of a Behind the Pros, um, episode 34. Um, on deck coming up, I have an interview uh, with um, Judith ortiz Cofer. We're going to follow up with Eric Deckers. And I'm reading Kim Brooks' novel the house guest yeah it's coming out um on april 12th i think right around there so make sure that you are ready to go to barnes and noble or wherever you get your book from and pick that up um check out the show page i encourage you to read alana's work it's inspiring and enlightening um tweet me at behind the pros um sign up for our email newsletter because there's going to be some giveaways coming up Um, But thanks for rocking with me again. Until next time, listen, learn, and write.